Open God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll be reading 2 9 through 3 7. Our focus will be on 2 11 through 17. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those, that, those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, uh, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of all our unrighteous rebellion. And forgive us for all of our unrighteous submission. Forgive us that it's quite often not ultimately submission to you, but selfishness regarding self that regards whether or not we submit or rebel. And so I pray, Father, for a humble heart that we'd be submissive to you in all things so that we know regarding all earthly authorities when to rebel and when to obey for your sake. In Christ's name, amen. Polycarp was martyred in the second century and he was said to have been a disciple of the Apostle John. No doubt his story has been somewhat embellished over time, but the ancient account of his trial goes something like this. The proconsul 
trying to persuade him to deny Christ, said, Have respect to thy old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, Away with the atheist, meaning the Christians who were regarded as atheists. They had no temple, they had no sacrifices, they had no priest. They were said to be atheists, you see. Well, Polycarp, looking to the unbelieving mass, the crowd before him, did just that. Away with the atheist, gesturing toward them. So again he was implored, swear and I will set thee at liberty, reproach Christ. Polycarp replied, eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And he also told the proconsul this, to thee I have thought it right to offer an account of my faith. We are taught to give all due honor to the powers and authorities which are ordained of God. Well, the proconsul just threatened. I have wild beasts at hand. To these I will cast thee, except thou repent. But he answered, Call them. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. Again, the proconsul threatened. I will cause thee to be consumed by fire, seeing thou despisest wild beasts, if thou wilt not repent. But Polycarp responded, Thou threatenest me with fire which burneth for an hour, and after a little is extinguished, but art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring forth what thou wilt. And so I believe Polycarp to be an excellent example of how we should relate to the state. And here it is in, in some, as best as I can glean it from our text. Act as those freed unto slavery. Act as those freed unto slavery. Polycarp demonstrated a submission and obedience to God, refusing to blaspheme the Christ, his Lord and Savior who had so loved him, and yet wanted to display a kind of, uh, uh, of submission, an honor to the powers that be insofar as he could. In one sense, Polycarp was totally free. Oh, send me to the beast, send me to the flames. And in the other, he was totally constrained to his Lord. It matters not which flag is flying, this principle remains. How should Christians relate to the state as those freed unto slavery? Live as though free from fear of those on this earth and bound to fear He who is in heaven. And we come to the section in 1 Peter where submission in three different spheres is dealt with. Government, work, and home. So verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse 18, servants be subject to your masters. 3 and verse 1, likewise wives be subject to your own husbands. Today we're going to look at this sphere of government in particular. But before we get to any of these commands in these three spheres, we have a general heading that falls over all of them in verses 11 and 12. And the heading consists of two commands. One looks within, the other without. One concerns the inward life of the saint, and the other the outward life of the saint. And we begin with the inward life, as we should, as we always must. This is always the case for the saint. This is where sanctification begins. Sanctification isn't like makeup, but like a detox. Sanctification isn't trying to cover up some ugly. It's purging out the evil. It, it's, not a, it's not a facade. It, it comes from the inside out. The outer life of the saint flows from the inner life. The public life of the church should be like the tip of an iceberg, where much more piety and righteousness and holiness lies underneath, of the, lies underneath the surface unseen. 
the public life of the saint is not to be a hiding of the private life. Rather, it's to be the expression and manifestation of the private life. Be much better in private than you ever are in public. Now, as to the inward life, Peter admonishes us. He urges us to abstain from passions of the flesh. What are passions of the flesh? Well, this is their former way of life, their former way of ignorance that dominated them. One fourteen, he tells them to be holy, not conforming to the passions of their former ignorance. In Ephesians 2, Paul captures the bondage that's involved in that former way of life where we give free vent to the passions of our flesh. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In chapter 4, Peter will write about not living for human passions, and he goes on to elaborate sensuality, passions, of, uh, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Or you go to Galatians where Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Now the works of the flesh, this is what the passions of the flesh involve. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So what does it mean to abstain from these passions, the sinful desire and impulse that's part of who we were in Adam? What does it mean to... Abstain from these things. Well, Peter told you in two one to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy. Abstaining means putting away. It means that on our earthly pilgrimage, that something of these things will remain with us that we will have to fight, but we're to abstain from them and be putting them away, putting away these these hindrances that that cause us to stumble or to trip or, or to sl- walk slowly on this pilgrimage home. In Romans 8.13, Paul put it this way. He said, mortify these desires. Kill them. Put them to death. John Owen put it this way, reflecting on that text. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's what this, uh, this abstaining isn't, isn't a, that, don't, it, it, it isn't nice. It, it isn't, it isn't just this uh, pastoral scene that, that we should have in mind whenever uh, this calm, kind of collected, reasoned approach uh, as far as us putting away and abs- we're to abhor these things, to hate these things, abstain from them, put them away, kill them. In what manner should you be putting them away as Sojourners and exiles. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from these things. Put these things away as though they were something foreign to who you are. Because now in Christ, they are. That's not your identity anymore. It's not determined by Adam. You, you will have to deal with these things for the rest of your pilgrimage. But you're a pilgrim. Abstain from them. Put them away. You're distinct, you're separate. You're called out of darkness into His light to proclaim His excellencies, not the excellencies of sin. And so cultivate a heart. This is what abstaining and, and uh, putting away involve. Cultivate a heart that looks upon those things as some grotesque foreign dish like balut. Look at it. How could you eat that? You want to look on, on sin and cultivate a heart that looks on it in that way. Have you ever picked up some candy or some snack that you, you enjoyed as a child and then you 
bite into it and you wonder, why did I just do that? Why did I ever do that? You want to be cultivating that kind of heart with respect to sin. And this is how it happens, by finding a superior satisfaction and delight in Christ. Whenever the saints abstain from these things as though they were foreigners and exiles, they're doing it because they are foreigners and exiles. These things are foreign to them. They get, so, so the inward life lies under the outward life, but do you notice that identity in Christ is what lies underneath the inward life? Abstain from these things as a foreigner or a sojourner because that's who you are in Christ. Galatians 6.14, by the cross of Christ... We've been crucified to this world and this world to us. It's foreign to us. Or elsewhere in Galatians, Paul says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its its passions and desires. These passions and desires wage war against our soul, and so we must wage war against them. Now, from such an inward life flows this outward life, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Honorable public living flows out of private holy living. Honorable, beautiful, or good, that's the idea of this word, conduct assumes a standard. It's not according to what the Gentiles deem honorable or good or beautiful. There's a standard here. Not, it's according to what the God of truth declares honorable. And so do you see this is a life freed from slavery. You're not bound to what this world deems honorable. It's freed from slavery and it's freed to slavery. What does God deem honorable? Honorable conduct means doing good. And Peter again and again assumes that this will result in persecution. Here you're told, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers. So the honorable conduct evidently doesn't jive with their perceptions completely. And so in 2.20, Peter will speak of suffering for doing good. 3.6, he'll write of doing good and not being afraid. 3.14, he mentions suffering for righteousness' sake. 3.16, of our good behavior being reviled. But if, if, our, if our behavior is honorable, if it's good, what is it about it? Why, why are they angered so? Why are they hostile? Why do they, why, why do they revile? Well, before that, notice why it is. What's our motivation? And living honorably. It's God's glory. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Reminds you of Jesus' statement to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount that they are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city set up on a hill, and that they're to let their light shine so that others may see their good deeds and glorify their Father who is in heaven. And so though we are elect exiles, we're not to be some kind of monkish hermits that seclude ourselves to live a private holy life. This good life, this honorable life is to be seen, it's to be evident. But what does Peter intend by speaking of these these deeds being done such that they glorify God. I think that the key to understanding is this phrase, the day of visitation. This is another instance whenever Peter is drawing heavily on the Old Testament. The day of visitation. This could be referred, reference either a, a day of salvation or a day of judgment. And so you have Isaiah 10.3. What will you do on the day of punishment? Or the King James has visitation. What will you do on the day of punishment? In the ruin that will come from afar, to whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Clearly an instance of judgment. But then you'd have a text like Jeremiah 29.10 where God speaks of visiting His people to save them, to bring them back. What sense is intended here? 
Well, perhaps Peter is using this phrase to to be vague and attend to both aspects, that they may glorify God either by salvation or, or by judgment, and that your good deeds will actually play a part in either bringing them to repentance or as a part of the condemnation that's brought against them on that day. Or perhaps he means by the day of visitation, the day that God visits them in grace and saves them. What does Peter intend? Is there any indication? I, th- I think so. I take this verse in regards to their behavior to the population in general and how the, the Gentiles respond to it to be identical with the response of rulers in particular in the next section. Verse 15, this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And I take this silence to be the same uh, kind of thing in league with, associated with the shame that's spoken of in 3.16. When it speaks of, of us as having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Inversely, from another angle... In 4, 4, and 5, Peter tells us that the Gentiles are surprised whenever we don't want to join them in their debauchery. And that then they revile us. And it tells us that whenever they malign us, they will have to give an account to Him who will judge the living and the dead. I take all these things to be uh, overlapping, such that the, the silence and the shame is because of the judgment that comes upon them. Peter has been using phrases associated with Israel to refer to the elect, to the people of God. And I think he's using the term Gentiles here to refer to those who disobey the word as they were destined to do, verse 8. has that kind of absolute sense to it. And so whenever he speaks of God being glorified by the Gentiles on the day of visitation, it is the day of visitation. You see, I think it's odd if Peter intended to speak of their coming to faith, that he, would speak, he wouldn't just say that they would glorify God. But it's specifically that they glorify God on the day of visitation, whenever they will be silenced ultimately, shamed and judged. And so we're to keep our conduct honorable among them. Even whenever there's no hope, whenever we know we're living among those who will be damned eternally, live honorably still. Why? For the glory and renown of your God on the day of judgment. Now, honorable conduct in these next sections regards submission to authority. And, And the first one is government. How should we exiles and sojourners, we citizens of Zion, how should we relate to the nation, to the authority, to the power, which by God's providence we've been placed under? Verse 13, submit. Be subject to, submit to them. From the feds all the way down to the local police, submit to them. Keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable means paying your taxes, driving the speed limit, and not taking the tag off of the sofa until you've bought it. (laughs) Don't proclaim submission to one authority while displaying a disregard for a lesser one. Don't call for this world to bow the knee to Jesus whenever you outright in full with with no reserve, with with no hint of of, of reverence or honor, uh, disregard the powers that be. We who have a higher citizenship should be the best citizens of these low countries. We should obey and submit where the citizens of this world lie, fib, cheat, twist, spin, fib, sneak by. And if if we are to disobey... It's still for this reason, for our conduct to be honorable. 
But, but again, if, if our conduct is honorable, why, why do they hate it? Why do they ridicule it? And we've answered that. If our aim is the glory of God, if we're submitting, as we're told here, for the Lord's sake, there's where the rub is. Don't obey Caesar for Caesar's sake. Obey Caesar for the Lord's sake. The confession, Jesus is Lord, was seen as a radical political statement in the ancient world. And it still is. Don't let a veneer of Christendom fool you to really proclaim it by what you believe and what you do. To really proclaim Jesus is Lord is a radical political statement. All authorities are under Jesus' feet. For 3.22, He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So all authority, the authorities that be, are because the authority Jesus Christ is. Paul, likewise, please, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Who, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And whenever you submit for the Lord's sake, whenever you're, you're living this honorable life for the glory of God, when you submit for the Lord's sake, this terrifies the powers that be. What they really want is not so much for laws to be obeyed, as, as this law is good and it will be good for society. And I'm speaking of the rulers of this world. There are godly rulers, but I'm talking about the rulers of this world. What they really want is not for the laws to be obeyed when those laws are good and just. What they really want is someone who will fear and reverence them as Lord. They want to be bowed down to as supreme. The rulers of this world would rather have a disobedient slave that cowers in fear when he's caught than a free man who stands in confidence, even against the state, when he must. As a law-abiding citizen, as someone who loves that which is honorable and good and true. If your obedience is to Christ as Lord, if your obedience is for the Lord's sake, it means this, they're not Lord. They're not in control. You're free. And Christ is Lord. Under Jesus' lordship, the state has authority. We are under the authority of the state. I don't think that's what he's intending by free. He's talking about a kind of bondage and servile fear to the state is the bondage here. There's a legitimate authority that the state has, and it has it in two ways. This is it. This is how simple, simple civics is. The state has two purposes under the authority of God. Verse 14. Sent by Him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. To punish evil and reward good. That's the function of the state. It's that simple. Paul echoes this in Romans 13. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The powers that be, though, often get this reversed. They reward evil, and they punish good. They call good evil, and evil good. Douglas Wilson vividly brings to light one instance in his excellent book, Father Hunger. He writes, You get more of what you subsidize and less of what you penalize. Over time, what you subsidize and what you penalize reveal what you are actually after. What does our government subsidize? If a girl in the inner city gets pregnant, the state will offer to take care of her provided she does not marry the father. We then scratch our heads over the epidemic of illegitimacy we have created when we are subsidizing that illegitimacy. And when a man takes responsibility, marries a woman, starts a business, begins to employ other people, we make sure to fine him heavily and throw a bunch of regulations to keep the hassle factor high. Why does the state 
do this good deed. No doubt there is some true benevolence mixed up in this. But don't be so naive as to not understand that a dependent woman is a more reliable vote than a free man. It's a better way to secure power and control. You see, the state is just as good as the individual as putting a spin on their sin, as putting a a cloak of goodness over their evil. You know how to justify your sins under a pretense of goodness, don't you? Likewise, the state. But do you see what's assumed in all this? There is a standard. The state has a legitimate authority, and that authority can be abused. What are you to do whenever the state abuses its authority? You keep doing what you've been doing. Honorable conduct for the Lord's sake. You keep doing what you've been doing, and you express that I'm wanting to be submissive insofar as I can. And what you want to communicate is that the only reason that I ever disobey a lesser authority is obedience to a higher one. Total rebellion is not my aim. Total rebellion is never legitimate. Total and full rebellion against all authority, all power. The spirit of rebellion is unrighteous altogether. Righteous rebellion is always an expression of submission to a higher authority. There may be a reason to rebel against a lesser authority. There's never a reason to rebel against God's authority. And what you're actually doing is calling for the state in love to repent of her idolatry and to submit and declare Christ is Lord. Whenever the state calls evil good, whenever the state calls a homosexual... uh, Whenever she calls homosexuality in some form marriage, don't submit. Whenever she says that uh, gender isn't biological, don't submit. Some laws are good. Obey them. And obey them gladly unto the Lord. Some laws are dumb. They're not immoral. They're just simply dumb. And mock them. And obey them with a happy heart still. And so whenever you're driving on a stretch of highway in New Mexico, and you can see the only other car on said highway two counties away, and you look over and the speed limit is 60 miles an hour, laugh at the ridiculousness of the situation. And gladly obey. As a free man. Laugh at the situation Like you come from a country where such laws are just ridiculous. Laugh like you have a king that makes such laws look petty. And then gladly obey. And then, in love, try to see such laws overturned, rewritten, done better for the sake of your neighbor. And go along unflustered. I've jokingly said that I'm a single-issue voter and once Roe v. Wade is overturned, I'll still be a single-issue voter, and the vote will go to whoever will end daylight savings time. <laughs> so, so mock the, the dumb rule, and then go along gladly as a way of showing honor to your God. But there are some laws that are pure evil. Disobey them, subvert them, speak against them. There are many laws that are in between, though, that call for some kind of mixed response, and wisdom is called for in this regard. But can you see how if you live this way, the state will be afraid of you? They'll be terrified of you. They're not Lord. They're not in control. Can you see why the church has always been persecuted? To various degrees in various ways, whenever they're faithful to this charge, to declare and live out this confession, Christ is Lord... She will be persecuted. Whenever you won't bow to the state as supreme, they throw you to the flames. It doesn't matter if you be as wise as Daniel. Whenever you insist on worshiping your God, no matter what their laws say, when you insist on worshiping, whenever you insist on worshiping your God, no matter what their laws say, then they give you to the lions. But take heart. As you're ready to suffer 
for honorable living, submissive living unto the Lord. Know this, as you ready yourself to suffer proclaiming Christ as Lord, He is. And He's with you through the flames. And if you suffer with Christ, you'll be glorified with Him. Speak of those Hebrew children facing the flames. Our God is able to deliver us. But if He's not, know there is a God in heaven. And why are we to do this? Why are we to submit for the Lord's sake? For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. One accusation that was brought against the ancient church was that she was destroying society. She was disrupting good social order. And so, for instance, we have what's been called in in this passage that I read, a household code, saying how life is to be conducted in society. We have one here, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5 and 6, these instructions to to, to men and women in their marriage, to children, to, to slaves and masters, how we're to respond to government. And some will look at these biblical household codes and think that they're reflecting the patriarchy of the day, whenever they were totally countercultural. And you see it in this way. We have pagan household codes, and they only address the pater familialis, the head of the household, and they only tell him of his rights. Not of his duties, not of his obligations, but his rights and how he is to exact them by any force necessary because that's how Rome, Father Rome herself, himself behaved. Dominance. But the biblical household codes address the wives and the children. And whenever they address the pater familialis, they don't speak of his rights. You speak of his duty to die so that others might live. It was radically countercultural. And this is why as, as they would look at these, these household codes of the, the ancient church, as they look at how they lived, it was so threatening to them. Likewise today, we're accused of disrupting good social order, be it hate speech or are intolerance and bigotry. And they don't see the irony of the situation. Watch a little documentary called Free Speech Apocalypse. I, I think we're going to play that soon, but you'll see an astonishingly calm and collected Douglas Wilson addressing a college campus with venomous hate dripping off their mouths as they try to shout him down. And shout him down for being an intolerant bigot. Submit as far as you can. So that whenever you disobey, it cannot be mistaken for selfishness. But submission to a higher authority. If you go to jail, may it not be for tax evasion but for sharing the gospel of Christ with women as they approach an abortion mill. John Piper gives one reflection on the early days of the pro-life movement that, that speaks of this silencing those who speak against you. He recollects how in the early days of the pro-life movement there was uh, the accusation that they were just middle-aged, right-wing white men who cared nothing for women. And he said that uh, that, uh, accusation has been largely silenced by honorable good conduct, by the thousands and thousands of pregnancy resource centers that have showed, no, we do care for women. What's the the principle in in nugget form? You come to it in verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. No doubt Peter, whenever he penned that, had to be reflecting on that instance whenever the collectors of the two drachma tax came to him and asked, does your master pay the tax? And, And Peter 
You get the sense that he mumbled yes. And he comes to the house, and it says before anyone, before Peter spoke, it says that Jesus spoke. So before, before Peter's had a chance to say anything, we're told Jesus spoke to him first. And he asked him, what do you think, Simon? From whom, do the kings, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And Peter replied, from others. And Jesus said, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them. When you give offense, let it be for the right reason. Not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Pharaoh has no claim on the whole of us. He has no, no claim as Pharaoh tried to lay claim on the Hebrew children. The powers that be have no claim in us in the sense that they are Lord. Do not fear them or revere them in that way. They have no claim and yet let us make the best bricks. But we draw the line when she asks for them to be made for an idol. And so in this way, we are both the most obnoxious and the best of citizens. And should the saints be eradicated, and I mean the saints, it should be devastating for society. They are the best thing about this earth. The salt of it, the light of it, a bit of heaven manifest on this earth that is cursed and perishing. We're set free from this kind of bondage to the powers that be to find freedom and slavery to God. Live as those who are free. Live as servants, as slaves of God. Live so that whenever, so that you're, you're going to obey even when it costs you. It's not selfishness that's driving you. Live and obey even whenever it costs you. And disobey when it costs you even more. All as an act of obedience to your Lord. Live demonstrating that you are free and you are a slave. And whenever you do this, whenever you show that you're not afraid of them, but you're afraid of God, it will terrify them. And as they call for you to bow the knee to the state, stand with confidence, bowing in heart to the Lord and calling for them to do likewise. And Peter ends with a summary that, that is much more profound than it might seem at first glance. Honor everyone, love the brothers, fear God, honor the emperor. He goes from the general to the specific and from the highest to a lower. So from the general, honor everyone to the specific, love the brotherhood. Every human being should be honored, made in the image of God, worthy of dignity in that regard. But love the brotherhood. Love the new humanity in Christ. Peter's just given a, a, an expression of this in the, the way he's addressed them in this, in this section. Did you see it? Beloved. As you realize that the church of God is the beloved of God and the beloved Son, you'll have this kind of attitude. This is a form of address that's far too rarely used and I think esteemed in our hearts towards one another. Beloved. Beloved. Love one another. Honor everyone, but love one another. And then he goes from the population in general to authority, and beginning with the highest authority to the highest earthly sphere of authority. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Do you see that the higher form of honor is called for towards God here? In 3.14, Peter will admonish us, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Matthew 10, Jesus promises that his disciples will be dragged before governors and kings. And he tells them that a servant is not above his master. And then he says, so have no fear of them. 
Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Or you remember Yahweh's command to Isaiah. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But Yahweh of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And it's immediately after that that Isaiah quotes something that Peter's already laid as foundational. Isaiah says, or he's, he's recording the words of Yahweh, He, Yahweh himself, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble in it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Beloved, God has set his cornerstone. Live unto him upon whom you've been set and in whom you find your identity in fear and submission to him and knowing that there you're being built up as a temple and that all who reject that stone will stumble and be broken. You're free. You're free to honor. You're free to fear. John Chrysostom, his last name being given to him, meaning the golden mouth, was perhaps the best expositor of God's word in the ancient world. In an age where so many were given to allegorical interpretation, he held to just a clear understanding of the text, the grammatico-historical method, just what does the grammar mean? What does it lay out there and what did it mean historically? Well, the emperor at the time, he was, he was bishop of Constantinople at this time, and uh, the, the emperor was Arcadius, but the real ruler was his wife, Eudoxia. And many of the elites were offended by Chrysostom for his rebuke of, of how the wealthy behaved towards the needy. But that's not what really set Eudoxia off, though she probably didn't care for that. What really bothered her was whenever he preached from 1 Kings 21 concerning Jezebel seizing and her part in the seizure of Naboth's vineyard because Eudoxia had just done something nearly identical to that. And as the people heard the sermon, there was no doubt in their mind where the application lied. Well... She went into league with the Bishop of Alexandria, who also had beef with John because Constantinople had risen in prestige over Alexandria. And so a slew of accusations were brought against John, most of them ludicrous. And he refused to recognize the legitimacy of the council. He realized this was a sham. And he wouldn't appear. But they sentenced him to exile anyway. And the people hearing this surrounded the church to protect their beloved shepherd. And John stealthily snuck out and surrendered himself so that no harm would come to the sheep. That's honorable conduct. He submitted to the authorities for the Lord's sake, for the sake of the flock. But the exile didn't last long. It was re- that order was rescinded very soon, no doubt in response to popular outcry. But the peace didn't last long either. period of about four months later, Eudoxia had a statue of herself erected near the church. And lewd amusement surrounded the installation of the statue. We can only guess how Chrysostom responded, but evidently he did enough to where he was put on trial again and exiled again, but this time there would be no coming back. After he had been exiled to one place, they decided that wasn't harsh enough and that he needed to be relocated and he had to travel there on foot, a journey which killed him at the age of 58. Earlier in a letter to another bishop, he wrote... When driven from the city, I cared nothing for it. But I said to myself, if the empress wished to banish me, let her banish me. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. 
If she would saw me in sunder, let her saw me in sunder. I have Isaiah as a pattern. If she would plunge me into the sea, I remember Jonah. If she would thrust me into the fiery furnace, I see the three children enduring that. If she would cast me to wild beasts, I call to my Daniel in the den of lions. If she would stone me, let her stone me. I have before me Stephen, the proto-martyr. If she would take my head from me, let her take it. I have John the Baptist. If she would deprive me of my worldly goods, let her do it. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Chrysostom in this was no pure and absolute rebel, but one who was captive and bound to his Lord, seeking to show honor as far as he could, but wanting to fear God in all. That's what it means to live as an elect exile. We should always be prepared for such action. We may well be called upon to demonstrate such loyalty to God in a costly way soon. You will be prepared for that day by submitting right now to the authorities as far as you can unto the Lord. Live as free servants of God, knowing you have a dual citizenship. One citizenship is lesser and temporary. The other is greater and eternal. Being a citizen of Zion should make you the best of citizens of these low countries. But there should be no question where your ultimate allegiance lies in every act. Honor the emperor, but fear God. Let's pray. Father, May we be those who honor and esteem authority above all others on this earth because we, we recognize the one who is Lord of all. And we're astonished at the grace and mercy of Christ to bring us under your good rule. And that there's no power and authority that is except by your might for your reasons and your purposes. So may our conduct be honorable, and may we honor those you put over us. And may in all those things we be confessing Christ as Lord. In His name, amen.